0: So for this particular podcast, we're going to talk about uh, drugs that, that interfere with or are used for treating bacterial, viral, and fungal-based infections. Sometimes we'll hear the term uh, chemotherapeutics utilized to describe these types of drugs. Um, and what that term really means is that we're talking about chemical agents that are used to fight bacterial, viral, or fungal organisms that cause infection. So So these drugs fall into that category there. Um, Well, uh, we'll talk about these broken down by uh, infection types. So the first one that we'll talk about is bacteria. And so bacteria infections, bacteria-based infections are fought utilizing antibiotics. Um, Bacteria is classified according to its genetic structure. And we have to remember that not all bacteria is considered to be bad bacteria. So case in point, there's bacteria living on your skin and it helps to keep... uh, keep, um, other bad bacteria in check, or we could talk about bacteria that grows within the GI tract, like probiotics, for example. Um, so, so that's important to remember. Um, bacteria lacks the inability to perform mitosis or meiosis. So they have to steal nutrients like amino acids, sugars, so on, to from other sources in order to sustain and start new life. Um, so when we talk about antibiotics, um, we can classify them utilizing a few different methods, um, usually by spectrum of their activity or the method in which they control bacterial growth. So they can be bacteriocidal, which means that they actually kill bacteria, or bacteriostatic, meaning that they stop the bacteria from growing, and then the immune system from the host or the person, the patient, would then go in and destroy the bacterial growth that's occurring um, from the stagnant bacteria present. Um, once we know that the type of bacteria causing the infection, um, it, what it is, then we can use, utilize or select the most appropriate antibiotic uh, to, to treat that particular infection, that particular form of bacteria. So in order to select the appropriate antibiotic, we first had to identify the organism causing the infection. And so again, we're talking about bacteria for right now. So we can classify bacteria as either being gram positive or gram negative. What that means is that we actually stain the bacteria, a sample of the bacteria. And if it comes out gram positive, it means it's, it's going to uh, fluoresce almost like a violet color. And it means that there's a thicker layer of sugar amino acids um, that surround the wall of the cell called a peptoglycan. Um, and then peptoglycan surrounds this plasma membrane, kind of encases it. Gram-negative bacteria is more of a red or a pinkish hue or color, and it's a thinner layer of this peptoglycan. Um, Drug sensitivity, we could talk about um, how we decide if if a certain drug is going to be adequately used in order to treat this invading organism here. Um, it's important to remember that drug-resistant microorganisms do exist, including but with bacteria. And so as such, we need to remember that because we don't want to contribute to ongoing um, um, problems with bacterial resistance, which I'll talk about in a little bit here. Um, so we want to make sure that we can, we can um, assess the drug sensitivity as well. Other factors, like host factors, for example, or or the patient's factors, things like their immune system, how well is their immune system naturally function? Um, Where's the site of the infection or the concentration of the antibiotics? Um, And are they localized or are they more systemic? Do we need to worry about the blood-brain barrier and trying to cross the blood-brain barrier? we need to worry about vascularity or how much blood flow there is to a particular area, remembering that the more blood flow there is, the more ideal that we can increase the concentration of nutrients, chemical mediators, things along those lines to those particular areas. Uh, The age of the patient, we know that younger individuals, infants, young children um, have underdeveloped immune systems as well as the elderly tend to have more taxed immune systems, not to mention that we have individuals of all ages who could potentially be uh, immunocompromised with other things, HIV positive, cancer, so on and so forth. Um, Pregnancy, I've talked about this before extensively, pregnancy changes everything. So if we're worried about uh, an infection, we need to make sure that we are um, uh, discussing our concerns with, with all the providers involved, OBGYN, primary care, and whoever else might be involved there. Uh, and then the genetic disposition. Some people are just more sensitive to certain drugs than others for whatever reason. So there's, there's, a, there's four main ways that antibiotics work to fight infection. So we're going to discuss each of these four means. And we're going to talk about uh, different drugs that fall within each of these categories. So the first one are antibiotics that inhibit uh, bacterial cell wall synthesis. So the bacteria can no longer create or maintain a cell wall. And when that occurs, this, the bacteria dies. It can't hold its you know, organelles in, for example. So one of these is uh, penicillin. Uh, sometimes you'll see penicillin abbreviated as PCN. Um, and penicillin has lots of different derivatives from it. So these all kind of act in very similar fashions, and we'll call them penicillin-based drugs. Um, They work by passing through small pores on cell walls, and they bind to these penicillin-binding proteins. Uh, And this inhibits specific enzymes from being present or being active in order to help build the cell wall. The great thing about penicillin is that there's virtually no effect on host cells. Um, So we don't see a lot of good bacteria being killed off, for example. Um, And penicillins have a basic common chemical structure. And we call call it a beta-lactam ring. A beta-lactam ring is is three carbons and a nitrogen um, bonded together to form a ring. And the accessory groups that come off of these three carbons and a nitrogen Um, are what make the different forms or different versions of penicillins. And we'll talk about cephalosporins as well here in a minute. Um, But it's kind of the basis, the backbone, for example. Uh, Penicillin does have a variety of negative reactions. It can be anything from a basic kind of uh, rash, uh, itchy skin, all the way up to full-blown anaphylaxis. Uh, If anaphylaxis does present itself, it usually happens fairly quickly, within usually about 10 minutes or so. Um, As well as bronchiospasms, vasomotor collapsing, uh, laryngeal edema, for example. So this can get pretty serious pretty quickly. Um, So it's important to ask that if a patient does have a history of some kind of reaction to penicillin, that they are um, being clear about what that reaction entails. And you, you'll probably need to probe the patient a little bit to ask more about what's going on. So if they say that they've had a reaction, they're, they're quote-unquote allergic to penicillin, you need to ask what exactly is going on because um, obviously if they're going to have full-blown anaphylaxis, that's one thing. But if they're just going to have more of a localized rash, the cost-benefit uh, cost analysis of, of giving them penicillin versus an alternative drug might be worth a mild rash in that case. Another uh, antibiotic uh, group that works by inhibiting cell wall synthesis of the bacteria are cephalosporins. And these are, these are very commonly subs- uh, prescribed in today's day and age. And they do, from a chemical structure, again, look similar to penicillin. So they're going to have that beta-lactam ring as well. Um, we have first, second, third, and fourth generation cephalosporins first-generation cephalosporins are more effective really against just gram-positive bacteria, whereas second, third, and fourth-generation cephalosporins fight against both gram-negative and gram-positive, but tend to do a little bit better with the um, gram-negative bacteria. So kind of from the 10,000-foot view looking down, these cephalosporins are pretty good for respiratory-based infections, skin infections, or infections of other soft tissues, as well as meningitis. Um, They can be given through both an oral route or as well through an injection. And the reactions that we can see with these are similar to that of penicillin. Um, So, And because there's a similar reaction, a similar chemical structure, we need to be careful about crossover. Um, If they do have a history of penicillin, they may have a very similar reaction to cephalosporins. Not always, um, but it is is, uh, an increased risk compared to some other um, antibiotics that are out there. All right, the second means in which antibiotics can work is through the inhibition of bacterial protein synthesis. So this works by binding to bacterial ribosomes and preventing new amino acids from synthesizing. And if we can't have amino acids synthesizing, then we have no way to build proteins since we need to remember that amino acids are the building blocks for proteins. So that means that these antibiotics are bacteriostatic in nature. They don't kill off bacteria, they just prevent new bacteria from growing. And so the the host immune system has to kill off the existing bacteria. Uh, One of these types that we see with this um, bacterial protein synthesis inhibition are tetracyclines. Tetracyclines are broad spectrum. That means that they're good at treating both positive and negative gram-stained bacteria. Uh, they're also really good at some of the less common versions of bacteria like spirochetes uh, or riciseus, like those um, so spirochetes would be Lyme disease, or um, rickiseus is like uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, for example. Um, but we have to be cautious because these tetracyclines tend to compete with some vital minerals. So calcium, zinc, um, iron, magnesium, for example. So when we have patients taking tetracyclines, we want to make sure that they are taking it at least an hour before a meal or at least two hours after a meal so that we're not competing with um, these minerals. This is extremely important, too, with um, with individuals who are maybe supplementing calcium, for example, if they're osteoporotic, um, you know, or in children, uh, high dosages of these tetracyclines can actually lead to uh, tooth damage because of this calcium competition going on here. Um, reactions these can include just kind of generic GI upset, anywhere from kind of just GI general kind of GI discomfort, nausea. Um, but we also see uh, photosensitivity, so they're more they're more susceptible to sunburn, for example, UV radiation. So uh, we do want to educate our patients about being out in prolonged sun exposure, and if they have to be for whatever reason, we are pushing, encouraging much more frequent and higher SPF uh, sunscreens. Um, another drug type, it's kind of, it's a unique drug because it's the only drug in its class is clindamycin. Uh, clindamycin is good for anaerobic bacteria and it's not really that affected by food all that much. Uh, one, one, af- one effect that we do see a reaction that we do see with clindamycin usually is, is diarrhea. Um, so this might need to be taken in conjunction with say like an emodium or another drug. Um, Uh, GI type of medication in that category there. Uh, But these clindamycins are are good for clindamycin, is good for, um, like you'll see it for like acne or skin-based infections, for example. All right, the final category that we'll talk about that inhibit bacterial protein synthesis are these aminoglycosides. These are really kind of strong antibiotics here. And so these are really reserved for inpatient use. Um, They're given via IV. Uh, we can use them topically um, if if we needed to, but we really tend to receive them more for inpatient type of care. Um, these are excreted exclusively via the kidney, so we do need to re- uh, monitor for for renal impairment, which is part of the other reason why we why we reserve these for inpatient um, uh, settings here. and And long term use can lead to something kind of unique called auto, uh, ototoxicity, which is where we have hearing loss or balance problems secondary to um, destruction of some of the, the inner ear structures from this, from these uh, aminoglycosides. All right, the third category of how antibiotics can work are inhibiting the bacterial DNA synthesis. Um, so one of these categories uh, that does this are fluoroquinolones, and these are these are broad spectrum, um, and they inhibit the DNA from coiling. If it can't coil. It can't uh, zip and unzip and all that kind of stuff to reproduce. Um, Reactions that we see with these are GI upset, arthroplasty, or kind of just generic joint problems. Um, We can also have some kind of CNS interference with headaches, dizziness. Um, We don't use these in children because of some of these side effects that we can see here. But something that's very unique to these tetracyclines are... Uh, an increased uh, number of tendon ruptures due to some disruption of the extracellular matrix of the car- cartilage. So we you know, Achilles for example, is a, is a commonly ruptured tendon. When we look at tendon ruptures from tetracycline. So we should be discontinuing use of these antibiotics and switching to something different. If we're experiencing any kind of acute or subacute tendon pain and or inflammation. Um, that's if we opt to utilize tetracyclines at all, even in our physically active. Usually we try to shy away from these with physically active individuals for this very reason. Um, and again, these tetracyclines, we don't want to have them in, uh, taken in conjunction with calcium, zinc, iron, magnesium, because again, it helps to reduce the absorption of, on this time, the antibiotic side. So these, these minerals will win out usually over the antibiotic to be absorbed, thus potentially leading to antibiotic resistance here. Um, the fourth means in which we can treat uh, bacterial-based infections is through the inhibition of folic acid synthesis. Um, so we'll use something called sulfonamides or sometimes you'll hear these called referred to as sulfa drugs. Um, these predate penicillin, but they kind of lost out just because penicillin is just a better antibiotic and it's a little bit more um, tolerated. Um, but we still do use sulfa drugs to treat UTIs or urinary tract infections. Um, they're bacteriostatic, so they don't necessarily disrupt uh, reproduction of the of the bacteria itself, but they re- they disrupt is folic acid synthesis by the bacteria. Um, the other thing with these sulfonamides is that people tend to have hypersensitivity there's an increased amount of hypersensitivity to sulfa drugs it's not uncommon to hear people saying that they are allergic to sulfa drugs um, so again we want to probe well, what does that allergic reaction look like in you particularly is it is it anaphylaxis is it bronchial constrictions is it cardiovascular collapse you know, so on and so forth uh, we also see uh, photosensitivity so that sensitivity to uv light uv radiation um, we can also see a reduction in the effectiveness of oral birth control. Um, so that is something else that we also need to educate our patients on, that if we need to utilize a sulfa drug, that they need to uh, be cognizant of those types of things. Um, these also tend to lead to destruction of, of good bacteria in the body. So sometimes we need to supplement through something like a probiotic uh, or dairy, but I'm hesitant to supplement with dairy because dairy is heavy in calcium and we just talked about how calcium competes with uh, this antibiotic and it can actually lead to uh, some negative absorption with this antibiotic. So really they, we need to be pushing probiotics uh, if if GI upset is is a real concern with, with taking these sulfonamides. All right. The other types of kind of antibiotics out there that we can commonly see are things like uh, triple antibiotic ointments or TAOs or other over-the-counter ointments. Um, Triple antibiotic ointment, it works in three different ways. It works by inhibiting cell wall activity, inhibiting protein synthesis, and inhibiting some DNA synthesis of the bacteria. So it's great, but it's really only for more superficial-based bacterial infections. This is not something that we necessarily want to use uh, deeper into, say, you know sub sub um, dermis types of of wounds and things like that. The other thing that we need to discuss briefly is antibiotic resistance. and this is a huge concern not only in the United States but from a global perspective. And so what this is is that we have, it, we've essentially over prescribed antibiotics over the years and what's happened is that existing bacteria is now resistant to a lot of these different forms of antibiotics that we used to be able to use. And there's a, lot, there's a few different reasons why this has occurred. One is because we've just overprescribed. You come in sick, you're given antibiotics. When in all likelihood, if you come in with some kind of respiratory ailment, it's actually probably more viral than it is bacterial. And so now you're just feeding the system um, antibiotics for no reason at all. So existing bacteria can, can um, essentially uh, learn uh, these these back to antibiotics and then learn defense mechanisms against them. Um, the other thing is, and this is also a problem, is we need to educate our patients about this. But but patients who feel better and then they stop taking the antibiotic too soon. So uh, maybe a 10 day course of antibiotics, but on day seven, day six they feel better, so they stop taking it. The problem is they're still fighting an infection. It's just at a subclinical state where they may not have symptoms. So, they stop taking the antibiotic, and the bacteria that is still around can then kind of adapt to the antibiotic in hand, replicate, replicate, replicate. The infection comes back, and now it's no longer um, able to be susceptible to uh, the effects of the antibiotic at hand. So, they, they have a resistant form. And so, to give you kind of more of a tangible, real life example, um, MRSA, or methylacillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus is a form of staph infection that we are we are concerned about in um in in say athletic settings because of close contact and and shared equipment um and so MRSA is resistant to many many different forms of antibiotics that we typically use to treat staph infections and so now we only have a small amount of antibiotics left that are effective Um, And even then, sometimes it's questionable against MRSA or MRSA-based infections. So we have to be very cognizant and cautious about that if we choose to utilize these antibiotics to treat MRSA, that it's done correctly and it's done um, for uh, um, the right reasons. So switching gears a little bit, we're gonna talk a little bit about antivirals now, uh, but before we get into antivirals, I wanna talk about viruses. We need to understand what a virus really is before we can really appreciate how these antivirals work. So a virus is is really just kind of two basic components. It's some sort of nucleic acid, whether that's DNA or RNA, and then a protein coat that surrounds it. Um, it really only brings what is necessary to replicate. that's really its sole purpose is to replicate. And and what it does is it it transmits um, or it replicates by hijacking host cells and injecting its own nucleic acid into the cells. Then the cell then replicates that DNA as opposed to its own DNA um, and serves kind of as an incubator until it explodes and continues the cycle. viruses are, are can be transmitted in a couple different ways but the two major ways is through contact um, whether that's contacting a person or contacting a a, a, a surface for example or through uh, respiratory air um, air means um, sometimes they can be localized sometimes they can be systemic so so systemic being like a common cold or the flu or HIV versus localized where um, it's more just that ah, it's localized, it's like a a wart or a cold sore. Um, so, oral antivirals, we have a handful of them. The problem with them is that we we don't like to give them out too easily, too too readily, because. Much like we're concerned with antibiotics, we don't want to have antiviral resistant because we don't have as many antivirals out there, and they don't work as easily as antibiotics. And if we do end up having resistance to antivirals, that could really lead to some detrimental effects for individuals down the road. Um, so, some of the ones that will, some of the antivirals that we'll commonly see in the outpatient orthopedic sports medicine world are things like acyclovir. Uh, and this works by inhibiting DNA replication within the host cell. So the virus essentially can't reproduce, and the, the host or the patient's immune system eventually destroys off the virus. Um, another one is Abriva. and this is a topical uh, antiviral that's used for cold sores, which are uh, caused by HPV or human papillomavirus. Uh, another one's Relenza. Relenza is similar to um, Tamiflu. Maybe you've heard of Tamiflu in that it works with the body's immune system to decrease the duration of flu-like signs and symptoms secondary to some kind of viral infection. Um, But much like Tamiflu, it's got to be started within 48 at the most 72 hours after the onset of symptoms. Um, and so this can be problematic because people may not really realize that they're having flu-like symptoms until it's close to that the end of that period. Um, and in which case, we can, it's too late. We can't give it. There's too much of a virus present. There's too much of a viral load present within the system for us to be able to successfully give uh, antivirals for it to be effective. And then if we were to introduce antivirals with a high viral load like that, we would lead to resistance. And that could be obviously very bad. Um, the other side of things besides antivirals are uh, vaccines and vaccines are not treatments they're preventative measures and so vaccines are created there's lots of different ways that vaccines are created but we're going to talk about one particular vaccine in in um, as a main focus for this talk just because it's commonly used and that's going to be the flu vaccine Um, and so flu vaccine works by by um, presenting key proteins from the virus From the flu strand that of that particular season into the body, the body then recognizes that these proteins, these protein sequences, when they are present are negative. And as such, the body will recognize and start to create um, antibodies towards these proteins. So it's important to understand that at no point in time with a vaccine is someone being injected with an actual live version of a virus. It's parts of. Uh, key key identifiable parts of a diseaseing uh, virus that's presented to the body. So, what that means is that you can't get sick, you can't become ill from a vaccine. Uh, thinking that you're getting, say, the flu. What you can get is, I'm not saying you can't get you can't get flu-like symptoms, right? But what's happening there is you're you're enticing a immune response. You want the body to recognize that these are negative proteins. Um, and so it is normal to have the body spike up, realize that there is some kind of infection and start to have an infectious response, like a low grade fever, feeling malaise, feeling run down. But that's just an immune response to these, these disconnected proteins. You are not getting the flu. Um, Now, the other side too is we have to remember in educator patients that vaccines are not kind of, you get an injection and 20 minutes later, you have immunity. That's not how these work. It takes time to replicate uh, enough of these antibodies in the body in order for them to be effective against if the virus were to enter. So uh, in general flu, you're looking at four to six weeks before you you have enough um, antibodies in the blood to fight off a flu infection. Other vaccines, it's different periods of time. Um, But the flu is kind of the one that we always talk about here, hear about uh, day in and day out, year after year about get your flu shot, get your flu shot. So I I really would encourage you to uh, always get your flu shot uh, and understanding why you cannot get the flu from the flu shot. Right. the final section that we'll talk about with this particular uh talk today are antifungals um understand that there are thousands of different types of, of funguses out there but only a fraction of them can really cause infection within the human body and in fact you sitting here listening to this to this podcast right now you've got fungal uh, um or uh, f- fungal cells on your skin right now uh, they're part of the homeostasis of, of just being a human and being alive what what we don't understand though is why sometimes fungal infections uh, bacterial infections whatever interfere with the homeostasis and actually start to become problematic thus leading to what we know as an infection um so fungal infections or fungi usually uh interact with the epidermis Um, and the reason being is that they're again they're already there Um, And fungi needs uh, three main components in order to to reproduce, and that's warmth, darkness, and moisture. So thinking about those three things, it means you're going to commonly see bacterial, or I'm sorry, not bacterial, um, fungal-based infections in areas, say, like the scalp or um, uh, the groin area or in between the toes and things like that. So um normally good hygiene normal just showering practices showering after you work out all those kinds of things are enough to mitigate any kind of fungal infections but occasionally it still happens um you know the important thing too is to understand that we have to educate our patients sometimes so you work in a high school right you've got kids that are going through puberty and starting to figure out what it means to be an adult and how to take care of themselves. They may not really realize that, yes, you need to shower every day. You need to shower after you work out. And so we might need to educate our patients about those types of things. Um, If they're still having quality hygiene and still getting a lot of fungal infections, we would want to get that referred and get that worked up to see if there's anything else going on with the immune system. Um, When we talk about fungal infections, usually we'll, we'll hear the word tinea. Uh, thrown out there, uh, tinea is a is a word that means um, skin, and it's it's obviously, um oftentimes in the same name as a fungal infection. So, for example, tinea capitis is a is a fungal infection of the scalp, or tinea corporis is of the trunk area. Tinea cruris is is jock itch or, or fungal infection within the groin. Uh, tinea pedis is athlete's foot or a fungal infection of kind of the, the forefoot between the toes um, of the foot. Um, there's other types of fungal infections out there that don't have tinea in the name. So onychomycosis my, myocosis is one example, and that's really just a, an infection of the, the nail bed. Um, fungus can spread from person to person, or they can even spread off of inanimate objects—towels, mats, um, showers, shower floors, things like that. So it's important that not only are we educating patients on good hygiene practices of not, you know, show- showering or sharing uh, shower shoes or sharing towels, but that we're also making sure that these areas are clean uh, and they're being cleaned appropriately with a with a, a you know quality grade. Uh, disinfectant uh, routinely Um, fungal infections can worsen when they're not treated properly uh, cutaneously or especially if there's cracks or damage to the skin it can start to kind of uh, seep down into the cracks of the skin um, allowing the fungus to then enter into the system and and in some cases can actually spread and become quite detrimental so that being said, there's a, there's a handful of different types of antifungals out there. There's topicals, which is what we try to always push towards. The reason we really like topicals is because, we'll we'll talk about orals here in a second, but oral antifungals are, are really quite taxing on the body uh, and um, could be really quite dangerous. So we, we want to avoid those because they can um, really be harsh on the liver. The other th- side too is with oral antifungals is sometimes they have to be on these for several weeks to several months. Uh, to get the uh, the infection under control, but going back to topicals, um, this is well within our scope as athletic trainers to to utilize to recommend. Uh, topicals usually can take anywhere from about a week to four weeks uh, to, to resolve the fungal infection at hand. And it works by impairing the cell membrane synthesis by limiting production of the key enzymes that are in f- uh, fungi. Um, these topicals typically come in three kind of main categories, that are, and they're over-the-counter. There are prescription versions of, to- of topical-based antifungals, but more times than not, over-the-counters work fine. Uh, as long as the patient's compliant. But there's usually a, a, an ointment-based, a cream-based, or an aerosol-based. So the ointment-based is an is oil-based oil kind of gel or ointment. Um, so it doesn't absorb as easily into the skin, which is not a bad thing because since the fungal infection sits on top of the skin, that's kind of where we want our medication to sit. So um, there's these ointments out there for fungal infections. Um, then there's the lotions, which are more water-based. So they do absorb into the skin a little bit. Um, which again is fine too. The one that I have a little bit of a problem with are these aerosol based While they're really easy to use because you can spray them and all that kind of good stuff, it's nice. Uh, the problem is, is that they're usually an alcohol-based propellant and alcohol will dry out the skin, which can lead to cracking, which can lead to places where the fungal infection can seep in. So I really kind of try to to push Patients towards more of the ointments or the creams, and to try to really ab- avoid the aerosols, even though the aerosols are probably the easiest to to apply. From an oral perspective, um, again, these can be pretty dangerous. These are very taxing on the on the body. Um, a lot of renal and hepatotoxicity can occur, so there needs to be routine monitoring of of the organs, uh, and it really needs to be watched carefully. So we don't want people to be on oral antibi- or not antibiotics, antifungals, unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, so again, try to try to stick to the topicals if we can. Um, adverse reactions from a topical perspective, these are usually pretty safe. There, there's very few reactions. Um, if there are, they typically tend to be very localized skin-based reactions. So we're not really seeing a ton of anaphylaxis type of reactions from the topicals. Um, but from the oral perspective, again, I'm very worried about liver and kidney health, um, as well as some cardiovascular risks with using some of these oral-based antifungals long-term.